0: Hey, everybody, welcome to another episode of CNA Newsroom, the podcast that brings you great Catholic stories each week. I'm your host and CNA's editor-in-chief, J.D. Flynn. And if you've been listening to us for a while, you know that we have been spending this Lent talking about things you might have given up for Lent, alcohol and chocolate. Well, this week, we're talking about something maybe you didn't give up, but maybe you should have. We're talking about gossip. First, we'll bring you moral theologian, Father Tom Petrie, to talk about why we gossip, and why we shouldn't. Then a Catholic psychologist will talk about what motivates us to gossip and how we can break the habit of spreading rumors. After that, our producer Kate Vike will tell you the story of a time when gossip had a fatal consequence. Before we get to that, a confession. I I liked Gossip Girl, the CW teen drama that aired from 2007 to 2012. Maybe you did too, or probably you've never heard of it. But yeah, as an adult in his late 20s when it aired, I was not Gossip Girl's target audience, but I liked it anyway. I didn't watch every episode. I'm sure there are a lot of things about it that are absolutely terrible, but I kind of liked Gossip Girl. So there's something for you to gossip about. You're welcome. We'll be right back. Stay with us.
1: You've reached the CNA Newsroom. CNA Newsroom. CNA Newsroom. CNA Newsroom.
2: CNA newsroom.
1: Welcome to CNA Newsroom.
0: Father Tom Petrie is Vice President and Academic Dean at the Pontifical Faculty of the Immaculate Conception at the Dominican House of Studies in Washington, D.C. He spoke with us about what St. Thomas Aquinas had to say about gossip. Here's Father Petrie.
3: Of course, as a Dominican, I always go back to St. Thomas Aquinas on these things and see what he says. And he he speaks about um gossip, what he calls backbiting. And the church really follows his lead on this, that backbiting or gossip is a form of murder, really. It's a form of theft, of assassinating a person's good name. Gossip can be a mortal sin, St. Thomas says, because it's very grave matter to intend to harm uh, a person's reputation.
1: So you said that gossip can be a mortal sin, but... But what about venting? You know, like, is there a difference between gossip and just venting?
3: Now there is a sort of place for venting, as long as it's not ill-intentioned. I mean, there can, there needs to be a place where among friends we can say very honestly, you know, I'm having a very hard time with this person, or I'm uh, this person I find very difficult to work with. Whatever it is, but you see, that's very different than sort of getting your friend and you know together over drinks or whatever it is and they're saying don't you think so and so should really do this or really is just a horrible person or did you hear what they did or what what they're doing so for saint thomas when we intend to destroy a person's good name he thinks that's a mortal sin uh, but if we're doing it and this is where it gets a little tricky if we just are doing it because we're not thinking It's a moment of lightness, you know, for example, we're telling jokes or having a good time and we don't really avert that we're gossiping or really harming someone's reputation. And he even says there may be reasons why you need to speak very negatively about a person behind their back or not with them, not present that might in fact destroy uh, their good name. Maybe it's because uh, the person is is objectively bad or harmful or doing some evil thing in the in situation. St. Thomas says if that's the case, if there's really a proportionate reason and it's necessary for the good, it's not gossip. Or if it's done out of lightness or just because you didn't avert to it or didn't think about it, he says that's probably a venial sin if it's a sin at all. So those are the lines, I think, for St. Thomas.
1: Father, do you have any sort of guidelines for anyone who's maybe worried about moments of gossip that they've had?
3: So the guideline is this. If you engage in a conversation that, you know, really tarnished or assassinated somebody else's character, and you, looking back in your conscience, know that you did it, like you really wanted to rope somebody in just to talk about this person because you don't like them, and they really, you know— one day they're going to they're they're going to get what's coming to them something like that and you really needed someone to you know really share in your anger and your desire to assassinate this person's good name uh, that that's grave i mean that's grave and now you know if you did that freely really knowing that you were doing it you should probably go to confession for that yeah
1: what would you say to people who find themselves in a conversation that has become gossip or is kind of evolving into gossip?
3: Aquinas would say that you're obligated to resist gossip. You're obligated to correct it. You're obligated to find a way, and sometimes it needs to be a smooth way, to change the conversation or to say, you know, that's gossip. I don't want to be part of it. You know, especially if someone's character is really being assassinated. But he does say that there are times when People might participate in gossip, I think especially in the workplace, when they're fearful or they're negligent, they're embarrassed to say something, to say, boy, this really is not a good conversation, and, you know, and they don't really feel like they can leave. St. Thomas says, of course, the fear or the negligence or the shame of saying something, you know, not having the courage to say something means you you're not necessarily participating in the sin especially if you don't like it but you are somewhat sinning venially by not in fact leaving the situation at least or 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 sticking up for the person whose character is being assassinated
1: are there any other important distinctions that we should know about gossip
3: one important distinction i think it's worth mentioning is that is the content of the gossip whether it's truthful or a lie because it can be easy to think that it's not gossip if I'm telling the truth about somebody, you know, if I'm revealing somebody's fault or their sins, and, and let's say it's a true fault, it's a true sin. But even that is still gossip. In fact, the distinction church teaching makes on this is the distinction between calumny and detraction. Calumny is when you are using gossip to destroy a person's reputation by speaking lies about them. Detraction is the sin of destroying someone's reputation by and intending to do so by speaking the truth of their sins or their faults about them. See, you can speak truthfully about someone's faults and sins and do so with an ill intention, a bad intention, using what they did to harm them and harm their good name.
0: Dr. Ken Buckle is a psychologist and the founder of a Catholic nonprofit clinic, Grazia Plena, in Houston. Here's Ken.
4: So, in thinking about gossip, gossip is something that happens between people. And I think it's um, our, our desire to communicate and interact with people, to be connected with them, is just a natural aspect of our being created by our God who is social and relational. Our God, who wants to connect and interact with us as well, and uh, people may have different definitions of gossip. If you talked with them and interviewed them and asked them, uh, it'd be interesting to actually see what people consider to be gossip and what's not. So there's there's one aspect of this that has to do with a, a lack of awareness, maybe, about what gossip is and why it may not be good. And and then the other the other aspect of not you know being aware of gossip some of us are not all that aware of ourselves so we don't we don't have self awareness we don't have self very good self monitoring
2: do you think that that plays a role in why we almost turn outward and you know find it easier to almost point fingers at other people for their their faults and their their shortcomings that though those faults may be true and they may be real we are talking about them in a way that is destructive You know, through gossip. Do you think that that kind of plays a role in why gossip is something that is so prevalent in society?
4: That can be one part of it. It's it's like a defense mechanism. If I'm focusing on somebody else and worried about what they're doing and talking about them, I'm not focused on myself. The focus is off of me. And so it becomes like a defense mechanism uh, to enter into gossip.
2: Are there any other motivations for why? Why we would gossip.
4: There can be jealousy or envy. Gossip could be reflective of an underlying anger or resentment toward a person. It could also stem from a feeling of insecurity in myself. I think also gossip has the potential to be contagious, you know? So we get in with a circle of people that like to do that, or, you know, it spreads like a virus, you know, one person starts doing it and the next person joins in. Uh, and and none of them realize what they're really doing and and maybe even are kind of sanctioning it or encouraging each other to do that, which is really a problem.
2: For our listeners, any listeners out there who, you know, potentially are listening to this and realizing, hey, maybe I do kind of have an issue with gossip. Maybe I do fall into this pretty often. um, What advice would you have for
4: them? I think we always start with the idea that uh, each person is important. Each person is valuable. Every person has human dignity that needs to be respected and honored and cherished. And, and if we have that opinion of each person, regardless of whether we like them or dislike them, what they're doing or their personalities, uh, then we begin to treat them in a special, del- delicate manner. And, and we need to do that with each other. We need to go through life uh, treating our relationships, every relationship, is something important and, and special.
2: Okay. Well, those are, those are all the questions that I have for you. Is there anything else about gossip that I didn't ask you about that you think is important for me to know?
4: You know, I think good people can gossip accidentally. They may not realize, I mean, people that go to church with us, people that are doing good things in the community, it just could be a bad habit. It could be something that they're not aware of. And, um, we can challenge and encourage each other, you know? So if I'm gossiping with some of my buddies, if we have a good relationship and they care about me, they might say, hey, Ken, let's not talk about uh, Sam that way. And uh, that helps me to look at myself, examine myself, correct myself, and then I might be able to make a change. And if if I'm hanging around people that have that same spirit of, of not wanting to tear people down, of trying to build people up and to treat people with respect, then maybe I will begin to change that behavior. Hey everyone, my name is Mary Farrow, formerly Mary Rezac, but if you follow me on Twitter, at Mary Rezac Farrow, you probably know that I recently got married. When I'm hanging out with my super cool husband at home, we like to listen to CNA Newsroom, because even though I work at CNA, it can be hard to keep track of all the news we cover. Plus, I love the inside look it gives me at the people and reporters behind the stories. I used to have an iPhone, and if I still did, I'd catch CNA Newsroom on iTunes, but now I have an Android, so I listen to CNA Newsroom on Stitcher or Google Podcasts. Find it anywhere you get your podcasts. And as a nonprofit Catholic journalist, the price of CNA Newsroom is always right. It's free. So, pop online, hit subscribe, send us a stellar review, and let us know what topics you'd like to hear more about. And now, back to the show.
2: For our final segment, We're going to share a story with you that is a particularly challenging story to share because there just aren't many details. And here's why. The story is about a poor Irish woman in the mid-17th century. A woman there is very little record of because why keep track of the life of a poor woman in Ireland? But though this story is challenging to tell, it still ought to be told. Because the woman was Catholic, and somehow, some way, she was the last person to be hanged for witchcraft in Boston. This is the story of Anne Goody Glover.
5: Anne Glover's story was just fascinating to me from the outset.
2: This is Jessica Trainer. She's the Deputy Museum Director at EPIC, the Irish Emigration Museum in Dublin.
5: Her initial history is quite shrouded in mystery because she left Ireland at a time of huge upheaval.
2: She's talking about Oliver Cromwell's invasion of Ireland
5: in 1649. About a quarter of the population becomes displaced or or dies or emigrates at this time because we have Cromwell's army, the new model army, sweeping across the country. Um, And obviously their religious background is Protestant, so they want to give favorable terms to any Protestant landowners, any Protestant citizens. But the, the Catholic Irish are very dispossessed at this point.
2: Cromwell's army pushed Irish Catholics to the west of the country, giving much of their better land in the south, east, and north to Protestant settlers. But for those who were both Catholic and poor, people like Anne Glover, Cromwell's invasion meant being shipped off to the West Indies to work as indentured servants on England's new sugar plantations. Anne, her husband, and her daughter were shipped to the island of Barbados. Anne's life in Barbados is still largely a mystery, though we do know that her husband died on the plantation, and it's believed that he was killed for refusing to renounce his Catholic faith. We also know that around 1680, Anne and her
5: daughter moved to Boston. Then once she gets to Boston, her, her life story becomes a little bit clearer.
2: Anne picked up work as a housekeeper and a nanny for a local family. As she settled into her new job and a new city, Anne got the nickname Goody. This
5: was a much more settled life for her. Obviously, you know, if you think about it, she was an asylum seeker, a refugee almost, in the sense that, you know, we would think of it today, in that she was cleared out of her country by an invading force, sent to work, you know, in this indentured labor situation where the conditions were really harsh for seven years or so, and then came to Boston. So we've got to think of this as a really fresh start for her.
2: We should also consider what life was like in Massachusetts at the time. Anne would have been surrounded by Puritans from England. Catholicism was illegal. There was actually a ban on Catholic priests under penalty of death. And here was Anne, who was Irish, Catholic, And he spoke very little English. Life in these new
5: colonies, in the Massachusetts colony, as it was at the time, was difficult. There were a lot of different cultures jostling together. And again, the fact that Anne would have spoken only Irish, a little bit of broken English, and even her prayers, she mostly knew in Latin. And all of these things could have led to a sense of suspicion.
2: One day, the family Anne worked for in Boston accused her of stealing laundry. An argument likely ensued, though again, we don't know the details. And then the children of that family began to act... Strangely. Here's Jessica again, reading a description of the children's behavior from that time.
5: They would bark at one another like dogs and again purr like so many cats. They would sometimes complain that they were in a red-hot oven, sweating and panting. They would fly like geese and be carried with an incredible swiftness through the air, holding just their toes now and then upon the ground.
2: Anne also drew suspicion for a collection of small dolls she kept in her room, dolls that she later admitted to praying with. Anne's accusers thought the dolls could have been voodoo dolls, but Jessica said they were likely an extension of Anne's Catholic faith.
5: You know, we have to think of the Catholicism of the time as completely different to the Catholicism that we would know now, you know, Um, and and especially uh, among uneducated people in rural communities. There was a huge kind of... uh, it was a huge devotion to various saints, especially saints that had kind of local connections or were said to have visited a holy well in Ireland. And, and these little uh, puppets that Anne Goody was found to have were probably very crude representations of the saints.
2: And remember Anne's husband, who died back in Barbados? Well, rumors were circulating about that. In a way, in the accounts
5: that we have of her, and the suspicion around her dates back to her time in Barbados, um, where her husband died on a plantation, supposedly executed for his Catholic faith. And, you know, it was said that he actually renounced his wife as a witch. And we've no idea whether that story was something that came about afterwards in the way that you know you can imagine people sitting around gossiping and have you heard that Anne Glover is a witch oh yes I heard that you know her husband renounced her when they were overseas in Barbados you know this could have been something that was added on to the story later we won't know we'll never know because the written records are so uh, scarce but it's just fascinating again to think how these gossips and these stories can kind of spiral out of control in this way. These
2: rumors against Anne could have also picked up particular speed because they were so contrary to the Puritan values of Anne's neighbors.
6: Much of it was kind of contrary to their their beliefs.
2: This is Father Robert O'Grady. He works at the Archdiocese of Boston's newspaper, The Pilot.
6: For instance, the, the, the dolls you mentioned, those were, uh, for those people, idols The Puritans, dolls were idols. And if you you ever come to New England, all you have to do is go to a congregational church and you'll see exactly what the issue was because they were just plain white churches. There was no decoration. There was no color. There was no stained glass window or anything. So anything that smacked of what they called papalism or Romanism was to them to be rejected basically out of hand.
2: Allegations against Anne eventually reached the ears of a Puritan minister by the name of Cotton Mather. Cotton was young. He was full of ambition. His father, Increase, was an influential Puritan minister and president of Harvard at the time. Cotton was also very interested in notions of witchcraft.
5: And Cotton kind of had a, a little bit of a, a point to prove. and he, he had a name to make for himself. So he became very interested in this... Um, In this situation with Anne Glover, and interviewed her a number of times and said some really interesting things about her that I think show up the kind of prejudices behind uh, his ideas of what was going on.
2: Cotton described Anne Glover as a scandalous Irish woman, very poor, a Roman Catholic, obstinate in idolatry. On these things alone, Cotton insisted Anne was a witch, and he brought her to what would be the last witch trial in Boston in 1688.
5: Cotton's kind of engagement with Anne goes from the level of, 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 of kind of condemning her for the, the actual facts about her life, that she was poor, that she was Catholic, and that she, she didn't speak a lot of English, to imagining these crazy, uh, kind of fantastical scenes that used to go on in her prison cell that he did not witness at all.
2: Cotton describes these scenes in a book that went on to play a very influential role in the witch trials that soon followed in nearby Salem. Of Anne, he writes, she used to be at meetings, which her prince and four more were present at. As for those four, she told me that they were and for her prince. Her account plainly was that he was the devil. The moment that perhaps sealed Anne's fate was a moment that came during her trial, when Cotton asked Anne to pray.
6: They tried people based on their ability to say certain prayers or utter things that a true Christian would be able to do. And what they did with Goody was to ask her to recite the Our Father in Latin. And of course, because she was, quote, a papist, theoretically, she would be able to know the Our Father in Latin.
2: Anne agreed and began to pray in Latin. But then she faltered, and she began to blend the Latin with Gaelic. In a way, these people almost see her as
5: speaking in tongues, you know? I mean, it's not like there's a huge other Irish community for them to say, okay, we could put her behavior in this context.
6: This is interpreted as a sign of her being possessed by the devil.
2: Anne was convicted of being a witch. She hung on Boston Common on November 16, 1688. The last person to be hanged for witchcraft in Boston. A local merchant who knew Anne wrote, They did her cruel. The proof against her was wholly deficient. The jury brought her guilty. She was hung. She died a Catholic.
5: Words have so much power. Um, And it's so easy to forget that words have the power to, you know, to move, to create joy, but also to condemn. And in a situation where you have somebody who's very convincing, spitting an intriguing tale, unless you have the articulacy and the education and the emotional intelligence to try and better that story in some way or defend yourself then you're really done for. And, and I think Anne Glover is a case where that uh, potential for words to really harm is taken to its really fatal conclusion.
6: In some ways, it's even worse than gossip taking hold and, and lasting. It seems to me that it's being able to take um, something and twist it and create what we would say today, a mob mentality. And remember, it wasn't just her, there were others both in Boston and then up in Salem, that were the same. And some of them were their own people, their own Puritans, who were, quote, public sinners.
2: Today, Boston's Cathedral of the Holy Cross sits upon the spot where Ann Glover was hanged so many years ago. The city of Boston also observes Goody Glover Day every year on November 16th. For CNA Newsroom, I'm Kate Veich.
0: That's our podcast for today, everybody. The really cool Gaelic prayers in the last segment were um, read by Dr. Jennifer O'Reardon, a professor at the Catholic University of America. And if you want to hear more of Dr. Jennifer O'Reardon praying in Gaelic, you can check that out on our Instagram, Catholic News Agency, at Instagram.insta.net. And, uh, and we've got them there. CNA Newsroom is a production of Catholic News Agency, a service of EWTN News.
2: And who am I? That's not a secret. I'll never
0: tell. (laughs) Just kidding. I'm your host, J.D. Flynn. We're produced and edited by Kate Vike and Jonah McKeown. Our executive producer is Kate Vike. Special thanks this week to all our guests on this week's episode. Till next time.